we run on these really, really quick media cycles. And that's changed even for the worse with, you know, Facebook and Twitter. And like the fact that we can sit in our own little bubbles and alternatively have realities that are separate than anything else, right? So like today, if you had the Teflon issue, you would have Teflon probably, you know, paying off both sides of, of the sphere. And, and I don't want to call it misinformation, but like you could skew the narrative for whoever you want to, given the media outlet that they follow, right? So this isn't Peter Jennings on ABC 7 News coming on in 1990s, and everybody came on between 7 and 8. And whether that guy told you the right thing or the wrong thing, you had one person to listen to. Our, our ability to digest information and like see all this stuff allows us in these really, really quick cycles of, of, of the media to then, you know, publicly hang these people because we were making decisions off of really, really quick pieces of data that the media is feeding us. Welcome to the Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. This is Phil Michaels, Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and performance coach. Every year, Forbes names the top 30 entrepreneurs, leaders, and stars in the world. And each week, I bring you one of them to help you level up in your life and business. From celebrities like LeBron James to Kylie Jenner and Cardi B, to entrepreneurs with companies like DoorDash, Instagram, and YouTube, you're sure to learn from the list. Thanks for spending time with me today. Now it's time to level up. Level up. Welcome to Phil with Forbes 30 podcast. Today we have a very special guest. They made the Forbes list USA in 2017 for the energy category. His company called Sutro is an automatic pool and hot tub tester for your water. It's a robot that automatically tests pH, chlorine, and alkalinity of your pool or hot tub, keeping your water safe and ready for a swim. It not only monitors the health of your swimming pool, but notifies you if maintenance is required. Automating water system maintenance saves chemicals, water, and energy. He holds a BS in mechanical engineering, an MBA in international finance, and a certificate from Stanford University in renewable energy systems. Please welcome my very special guest, Ravi Kurani. Thank you for having me, Phil. Very excited to have you here. Welcome to the show, Ravi. Um, this is very exciting. I think this is such a no-brainer idea, so I can't wait to share it with, with the audience. They're going to really benefit from hearing this, and I'm sure everyone with either a pool or a hot tub or a spa or someone that wants to test their water is going to want to take advantage of this opportunity. So I can't wait to share it and hear more about your story. But before we dive in, where were you when you found out you made the Forbes list? Um, I think I was actually in China, if I'm not mistaken. I remember like waking up and I think it had, it had gone past the day because I had woken up like, you know, a few hours later than when it had been announced in the USA. Um, I remember flipping through my iPhone and I'm like, oh my gosh, I just got the email that I made the Forbes list. Um, and so it was, it was really surreal being in another country and then kind of hearing that you made the list, which was really awesome. And who was the first person you shared it with? Um, I was actually traveling with my buddy um, and we were doing kind of a, a road trip or a, a trip in China, Southeast Asia. And um, I just like pushed my phone to him like you got it you got to read this thing man <laughs> um and i could see him as he was flipping through the phone and like seeing his eyes light up you know as he got to the bottom and he's like dude congratulations man it's rewarding it's validating you're like okay what i've been working on is finally getting the recognition it deserves 
people are starting to believe in me and, and the work that I'm doing. Because for a while, it's usually when you're first starting out, it's like either your mom or your dad or your friends just kind of patting you on the back. You know, you got this, you could do it or or the, the opposite. They just don't, they think you're crazy and why are they still <laughs> working on this idea? So speaking of those early days, why don't you take us back to the very beginning where you're from, where you grew up and the path that led you to where you are now, ultimately making it to the Forbes yeah. list. Yeah, sure. Um, so I grew up in Southern California in a, in a small, well, kind of big city called Riverside, California. Um, my dad and mom were basically immigrants from India that had come here. Um, and I was, I was born as soon as they basically landed in the United States. Um, and so, you know, going through that, we lived the usual, you know, immigrant life as they come to the United States. My dad actually had a master's in chemistry and wasn't able to find a job. So he was basically running as a pool service technician. Um, and in, in doing that job, he ended up, you know, coming across a pool supply store that obviously he would pick up chemicals from. And I think the guys wanted to go to lunch or something like that. And he started, you know, testing pool chemistry because the guy had a master's in chemistry. Um, and when, when this pool store owner came back, they, they like talked to the customers and they were like, you know, who is this new guy that you hired? He seems to really understand water chemistry. Um, and from, you know, there on forward, my dad purchased that store. He ended up growing that from that store to like 30 stores in, in Southern California. And, you know, obviously growing up as the son of an immigrant, you, you get put behind the counter too, right? You're everybody, everybody's working in that store. Mom was there. Dad was there. My sister was there. Family's working yep. in the family business. Exactly. And so, you know, I've, I've done everything from testing pool chemicals to installing filter pumps to, you know, running a little branch manager of my dad's stores of five stores near the beach. Um, and so, you know, growing up from that, got a, got a degree in engineering, did, did an MBA, um, and through my MBA program, actually, where the, where the genesis of Sutra came up was during my time in India. Um, and while I was in India, we were running a small venture capital fund that basically invested in bottom of the pyramid technologies. Um, so people who earned less than $2 a day, right? We were funding entrepreneurs that built products for that, for that, for that market. And so um, in kind of investing in that, in that sphere, we figured out that everybody was developing technology for water filtration, right? They wanted to fix water, but nobody was really looking at what was like wrong with water. Um, and so we said, how do we develop a sensor to better understand what's actually happening that's wrong with water? Um, we developed it and, you know, looked at the sensor space and it's super antiquated. If you remember, you know, doing a pool test strip where you dip the little test strip in, um, kind of like a urine test strip. You made that reference earlier of like looking at the colors and yeah, it's just, it's just, I remember broken. doing that when I had a pool and dad would say, you know, go out there and test the, the pH and you had to dip it in. And I even remember being at like a hotel pool and they'd have this little lifeguard doing his, you know, regular testing throughout the day. Yeah, 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 definitely. And so that's like, the scary thing is that's what you use for pool water. That's even used for drinking water. And so like water that's like pivotal to somebody's health, right, is, is that's how you're testing it too. Um, and so we built this sensor, we tried selling it to the Indian government, you know, stupidest thing a startup can do, obviously, because governments are riddled with red tape um, and so we came back and kind of went back to the roots and we're like hey let's we want to impact how water affects humanity but let's start the business off in some place we know we can make revenues 
Um, and, you know, I kind of went back to the roots with dad's pool and spa business and we, and we repurposed the technology for the swimming pool market, um, which, with, with kind of the eventual long tail goal of touching all types of water. Um, and so that's kind of, that's the genesis of Sutro, kind of where I came from too. Your dad sounds like the epitome of the American dream comes over. I mean, God bless. I'm getting a master's degree in chemistry. Can't find a job decides to become a pool boy, but is way overqualified for that position sounds like. And they're like, Hey, we got a talented guy here. We need to give him a, you know, more autonomy and then decides to take over the company grows it to 30 branches. I mean, sounds like an incredible entrepreneur and you got to be raised in that entrepreneurial environment. Mm -hmm. I think that's so valuable and, and helpful if, if parents can instill this entrepreneurial mindset at such an early age. And it sounds like it paid off for you concurrently while you're getting your academic education, you're also traveling the world and, and you've already been instilled with that entrepreneurial mindset. And then you applied it to your own company and you said, okay, well, Maybe it's not working through government. Let's meet people where they're already needing this mm -hmm. um, testing agent and then we'll uh, repurpose it. And it sounds like you did that. And then what was that moment when you started to realize like, wow, this is, this is working? Yeah, I think it was, I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because when you, when you zoom out and like hindsight 2020, you know, you, you kind of talk about this moment, right? And like you, like even I looking back today, I'm like, oh yeah, that was the time that, that I kind of realized. But when you're in it, it's really hard to see the kind of forest from the trees, right? And so, you know, I, I think what, what I really learned through building Sutro and, and the kind of moment that, that got us to where the product is today was, you know, launching things and launching things quickly um, was, the, was the kind of biggest thing that I learned. And so like very early on, moving from my dad's, you know, physical retail store to kind of this like e-commerce revolution, I spent a lot of time just trying to figure out how we can, you know, make my dad's business better. And like, I knew I had this sensor, but I'm like, how do you sell a sensor to an end user? Right. And this was like the beginning of IOT, like Alexa hadn't really come out yet. Nest was still kind of in the space. Um, and so like, just kind of through that process, um, I kind of very quickly realized like you need to get stuff out there and you need to get, you need to get people to validate if what you're building actually makes sense. And, you know, your mom and dad can pat you on the back, but you like need real customers to kind of truly break open the thing you're building and saying, Hey, like, I really don't like these parts because of it's not really going to solve my problem. And a customer that pays for something, you know, really doesn't have a problem telling you that. And so I think the quicker you get there, um, the better it is running a paid beta is such an invaluable lesson, like making sure, because those customers become part of the discovery process. And so you start it making iterations based on the customer feedback. And if they're not paying or getting it for free, they're not as likely and as forceful with their and transparent and open and frank with their feedback. Mm -hmm. So when they're paying for it, they're more likely to give you that critical feedback. So how did you do that? How did you get those early validations from your customers? What did you do? to take it from yeah. your dad's store to real life. Actually funny, really funny story. Um, I first kind of was at like a, like a lean, what was that called? The lean, the lean startup machine or the lean, lean startup workshop. Lean startup. Yeah. They used to have these like yeah, exactly. So there's like the book, the lean startup. And then Eric Reese used to have these workshops over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you'd come in. Um, and I think it was like a franchise off of what he was working on, but 
regardless, I was sitting at one of these workshops over the weekend. I had this you know, idea of this sensor, this robot that you put in people's pools that measure your water chemistry. Um, we had, you know, built the, the kind of beginnings of the sensor in India, but like by no means a finished product, nothing that you could actively, you know, connect to the internet and had an application and all that. Um, so for our, our first kind of a hack that we did, you know, in, in this lean, lean startup weekend that we were doing was like, how do you get customers, right? Where do you find your customers? And so, you know, typically you're like, let's go to Facebook groups and let's figure out who likes swimming, but like, if you like swimming, you might like swimming at the beach or you're really a pool owner. Um, and so through the kind of, you know, genesis of that weekend, we ended up, you know, going to next door. And so like I went to next door, we would like literally went to the backyard of, of a neighborhood in San Rafael in San Francisco, north of here, where there's a lot more expensive and wealthy houses. Um, I obviously didn't live there. I live in San Francisco. And so I had to like get into next door. Right. So we like typed in an address and it's like, Oh, welcome to next door. You've now been accepted. Um, and so I went on there and like with the very, you know, simple rationale of like, how do I find pool customers? And so I'm like, Hey, just moved into the neighborhood looking for pool service companies, thinking that people that live on next door would obviously answer my comment. Um, you know, went to bed that night, woke up the next morning with like a slew of about 11 comments. Um, and I had a little like quick landing page with a little email capture at the bottom. I think it was like three sections. We were called pool to O at the time. Um, and I'm like, Hey guys, like I found this really cool technology in San Francisco. It looks like a startup founder is working on something cool for your pool. What do you think? Pool to O.com. Um, the little, you know, image rendered at the bottom. That's amazing. Guys, clicked on but, it and they left their email. That's amazing. Um, By the way, for those that are listening that don't know what Nextdoor is, it's like a an app or a website where your community can gather together and share information specifically for your neighborhood. Like I lived in a gated community in Tampa and we had one and it was mainly for our community so you can keep each other aware and safe and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. you're, so you did that. That was genius. You're like, oh, some startup founder is working on this awesome product. And it was you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, you know, out of 11 people that commented, I think three people came to the website, left their email address. Um, and then I personally emailed them back. I'm like, hey, I'm the founder with a different name. Um, and I have this thing. I need you to, I need you to pay $2.99 to get it tested, right? I need to, I need to deploy the technology at your house. Um, you know, we at the time had basically enlisted a pool guy to come on board and like run the run the actual pool testing with the kind of limited version of the sensor that we had. Right. So for all intents and purposes, the sensor, we were testing it, but it wasn't as stable as, you know, it probably should have been. Um, and so to kind of augment that, we had we had hired um, a pool service company and I myself rented a zip car once a week and I would drive around and test these people's pools. And I was like, Hey, by the way, we don't have an application, but we'll use SMS to, um, to basically text you your, your chemistry, right? And we're going to do this once a week. Um, and by the way, I need access to your backyard. So myself and this pool guy can come in and validate if your water chemistry is reading what the robot's reading, et cetera, et cetera. Here's the, you know, rules and regulations of our beta test. Um, and so we started sending SMSs every single week. And when this, when I realized this was successful was, when you know we had taken a chemical inventory and i texted back and i said hey you're running out of 50 pound you know tablets of chlorine would you like us to order some for you text back yes or no and i got a yes from three people 
Um, and so we immediately had our entire loop, right? Of put the robot in your pool, get notified, and you can get delivered chemicals. Um, and it was concierge, right? The robot worked halfway. It was kind of sending us some data, but we were like holding its hand across from A to Z and seeing that validation and then talking to somebody when I did our post interviews, they were like, I don't know how I didn't live without this technology. Right. And the yeah, thing I is, can like, imagine. And because you were bootstrapping it at that point, it wasn't automated fully yet. You were kind of involved in some steps of the process. Exactly. And that's how you grew that initial, okay, we got it validated now that we have the step-by-step -step logistical process set up. How can we automate each phase? Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, then we took out to raise venture funding and we're like, hey, we have this idea for this new sensor based off of this technology I built in India. Here's the pitch deck. Here's the model, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then right. now what does it do? So that was the early stages of it. And then can you share with the audience, how does it work in its current phase? Because we went from dipping the pH strip in the water to now having at least an, a, the robot sensor with the SMS. And now how does it, how is it completely automated? Yeah, the actual interesting thing we do from our technology standpoint, um, if you remember doing those little drop tests where you took the drops and you like mixed up the chemicals and you put, you know, five drops in this vial that's about that big. Um, what we've done is we've actually taken from the medical industry and we made a vial that's about that big um, to about the size of this. So that little, that little square right there um, is oh, actually wow. the size of the vial. And so this is a, this is a technology called microfluidics, right? Small, small fluids. Um, so for, so for those that are listening and not watching, he, Ravi is showing us uh, the little square that now is, is about what size, would you say? Um, I would say it's about three millimeters by three millimeters of a little wow. square. Making it more efficient. So you, you have that and then what happens? So what we actually do is the same way that you drop you know, liquids into your little test kit, we basically take micro drops the same way that you would inside of this little kit. Um, and so this thing fits inside of this larger cartridge um, and the larger cartridge houses both this microfluidic as well as inside here are actually vials of the same liquid that you use. And this piece actually goes inside of this big device, which is actually the microfluidic chip um, doser, right? So this piece latches inside of one side of the device, the thing closes up, and as soon as you close it oh, up, wow. the thing floats inside your swimming pool. So that sits in your pool and it does everything automatically. That's amazing. And then it sends you the data where you have it stored so you can let these customers know what they need and when they need it. That's correct. Yeah. So this thing floats in your pool. It sends it to a hub base station that sits inside your house. And then the cloud notifies your, your, your application on your iPhone or Android to tell you, hey, your pH is off, your chlorine's off. Um, you need to put in you know, two gallons of chlorine or one gallon. Genius. Of this is one of those no brainer ideas that you're like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> so everyone that has a pool or a hot tub can use this. Right. And so they should have it, but also is, are you in like commercial settings, like a, a community pool or a fitness center that has pools? Yeah. The goal um, initially is to start in residential pools with the with the kind of close following of getting into commercial pools the interesting thing with commercial pools is you need to test three times a day by law in a lot of states um you know for for, for safety of people that are swimming in the pools um and, and and alternatively it has to use this sort of technology you can't use anything that's kind of other than this um and so that's that's the beauty of what we built is we're one of the only players that can autonomously take something that you're doing manually and just make it super 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 small so 
And if someone wants to purchase this, they go to mysutro.com. But are you also in stores or only selling direct through the website right now? We're only selling direct through the website right now. And what about your dad? I mean, your dad must have been like, man, you're going to put me out of business over here, <laughs> automating all this stuff. So how does he feel about it? He must have been really proud. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's kind of seen, you know, Sutra from the Genesis when he had his pool stores and we were trying to automate it and even sell the initial robot through his store. Um, he has, as of now, retired. And so, you know, I think he's kind of passed the baton on to me. So to do to do bigger and better things. Good for you. That's that's amazing. And, you know, thinking about your success and how you got to this moment, what would you say, Ravi, is the single most important attribute that got you to where you are today? Um, I think, you know, seeing my dad go through the pool store um, and building from his master's in chemistry, the two things I think that I've taken away from that and also tried to push forward is, is grit and persistence. Um, you know, working in startups and my dad working at the pool store, it's, it's ups and downs and mostly downs most of the time, right? It's a, it's a labor of love. And so, if you're if you're wary and you can't you know persist or you're not really passionate about the thing that you're doing, then it's probably better to go find something else in in the in the startup world. Um, and so I would say, yeah, grit grit and persistence. Just keep just keep walking and keep traveling on. How do you overcome something like that when you you just keep overcoming obstacles left and right? I remember a quote. Uh, I forget who said it, but they said success is just moving from one failure to the next without losing enthusiasm. I mean, what do you do to personally overcome those? I mean, when negativity is just at your doorstep every day, or you have another failure or another person says no, or another mistake is made on a team member leaves, what do you do to keep moving forward and stay positive and keep looking forward ahead? Yeah, I think with every failure, right, if we're going to call it a failure, every sort of um, valley, there is there is opportunity, right? And so I think taking a second to breathe, taking a second to just sleep on it, right, and and not acting um, out of out of urgency, right, or not or, or just not acting, you know, very quickly, um, I think it's something that I've learned, and that's kind of how I get through it. Um, and then, you know, alternatively, I love, I love writing things down. So I, I got this remarkable tablet and like everything I say or do is, is written down in this notebook. Um, cause I just have to doodle, right? If I'm in meetings, I'm like constantly doodling. And so, um, I think a combination of those two things and like objectively looking at what's actually happening, um, and then finding opportunity in the, in the Valley, I think is what I would say. And that's how I get through it. Yeah. Shifting that mindset from this is a failure to this is a learning milestone or a learning moment for me to take advantage of this opportunity. I think that's so important. And your method reminds me of, of not being reactive, but being proactive of Tim Ferriss, where if he receives an emotional email or something that affects him emotionally, he'll write out the email and save it as a draft. And then 24 hours later, if he still feels the urge to send it, then he can send it. But he said most often uh, than not, he either deletes the email completely or completely mm -hmm. changes what he was going to say back in the email. And I was sharing this with another one of the interviewees we were doing a podcast with. And I think it was, she said she does that with Amazon purchases because of the COVID crisis she was buying so much on Amazon <laughs> that she had a new rule for herself. I'll put it in my shopping cart 
And 24 hours later, if I still feel the need to buy it, I'll then purchase it. She's like, it saved me so much money. And I'm like, oh my it's actually gosh. a really good idea. I'm going to start using that. Yeah, yeah. So if we talked about the successful moments, but what about lessons? I mean, thinking about your journey, what, what is one of the biggest lessons you've learned that maybe you wish you had learned from sooner? Um, yeah, I think I would, I would probably double click on this, on this, you know, thing we were just talking about right now of being proactive versus reactive, right? I think that's it. When you, when you earlier, when you start out very early in the startup days, right? When you first started something, um, you want to be reactive because it's, it's your baby and you don't, you know, really know what's going on and you're constantly firing off emails to VCs and investors and you're like working, you know, 21 hours a day, um, taking time to sleep, right? Like you need rest is one thing that I've learned. Um, being proactive versus reactive is another thing that I've learned, right? Just getting the rest and then, and then taking that time to actually deliberately and objectively think about what's actually going on. Um, the third thing I've learned is, is people are what make up an idea, right? Or they're the ones that are going to execute the idea. You may have the entire blueprint on your head, but you're not going to be the one to code it and to build it and to go to China and to manufacture it and, you can touch many parts of it, but you're not going to be able to do it all. Um, and so you have to, you have to trust, right? You have to let go um, to a certain extent. And so that's kind of would be the third thing that I said that I've, that I've learned. Um, yeah. Trusting that it's hard to let go because it's your baby, you're the CEO, you're the founder. And it's hard to find that line between letting go and still trusting your gut and your own instinct and that you have the direction and vision that you want to see move forward. But you also have to let go a little bit to delegate to your team. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what's one of the ways that you're able to do that? And also what's one of the ways that you find yourself taking that rest, that much needed um, rest and relaxation, if you will? Yeah, kind of, I think, two main threads there. One is that um, I do I do regularly meditate and I do like breathing exercises, which is, oh my gosh, like if you, the only way I can describe it is, you know, when you get that, like, when you look at a TV screen back in like, you know, the eighties or nineties and they have, you get that static. Um, and then you like turn up the volume. to like annoy your parents and you turned it up all the way to a hundred and it was just like super loud and static. The white noise. The white noise. Yeah. That's like kind of what my head feels like after, if I don't meditate. Uh, meditation kind of clears all that out. And so that's one of the ways that I kind of rest and relax. The other way is um, detaching from your phone, right? If you're, or your computer, right? If you're constantly in front of your technology, you're going to very much be reactive because the thing is constantly flying in front of your face. And so you truthfully, you know, I charge my phone at night outside of the room that I sleep in because it takes me to get up and go and get it. Um, and I have intent there of going and getting that. Um, so that would be my kind of two ways of resting and relaxing. Yeah, you're being more conscious and intentional about where you're deciding to put your energy rather than reacting to, oh, the phone's going off. I need to respond. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We, and, you know, I mm -hmm. find myself even today like answering, which I do love answering customer emails, but like I will reactively start responding to things. And I'm like, you know, we have a customer service team. There's like, if I need to answer it, I'll, I'll, by the way, escalate it, but I don't need to be answering every single customer email. And so it's, mm. it takes that sort of, like you said, you know, you have to delegate, you have to detach yourself. And so that's kind of how I do it. Yeah. I, and with meditation, I kind of share that the visualization I, I like to think of is you're closing all the tabs down from your browser <laughs> and just allowing yourself to have that space to start from a clean slate 
so much is being consumed with your cognitive bandwidth and your mind. And this allows mm-hmm. you to just reset hundred percent hit the pause button as you and I talked about earlier. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then thinking about the idea, that's a great point versus the people and the execution. It reminds me of the Ted talk that Bill Gross did where he studied, I think over 10,000 startups and he wanted to identify what's the common theme or a trend amongst all of them. The ones that were successful versus the ones that were unsuccessful. And he studied all successful companies, big and small. So the Ubers and Airbnbs all the way to failures that never made it off the ground. And they identified there was five variables that had statistical significance more than any other. And those five variables in order, number one, I don't know if you've seen this video, but it's, it's timing actually. Number one was timing was absolute most important out of all five variables. Number two was execution of the team. Number three was idea. Number four was business model. And number five was funding. But he found when you, when you ask people, most often they sometimes flip the order and they say funding is the most important, the <laughs> business model is most important. But he said funding, you know, you can get customer validation for free and actually should even be paid for it. And then business model should always be changing as you're adapting to the market. If you're not changing the business model, then you're not adapting to the market fast enough. So it's interesting to see what most people think is the answer versus reality is timing so important in the execution of the team. So a uh, great Ted talk if you haven't already watched it. And thinking of you know those startups, one of the ones I think of is Airbnb because they were also studied in this uh, analysis that he did. And they did something really scrappy to start as some of the listeners have already heard in a previous podcast, they created the Obama O's and Captain McCain serial during the McCain and Obama election era. And that helped them raise 25,000 to start their business. What's something scrappy you did to hustle in those early days that maybe you couldn't have revealed in the very beginning, but you're willing to share now? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, actually that's kind of, um, double clicking on that story that I told you earlier about the, about the robot that we hadn't, hadn't quite built yet. The whole next door strategy. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, kind of reiterating that being scrappy with your market, you know, figuring out where you can find people going to the next door to find your customers. Um, you can concierge a product, right? So when we went and we deployed this piece of plastic in people's pools, we we provided the value that the customer was looking for, right? Which was, can I get in real time the values of my pool and can I get told what to do? Um, and so I think, you know, that was that was a kind of scrappy story of like going to next door, finding these people and putting in plastic in their pools and then running around with the pool boy to try to test their pools um, was like- Great idea. I mean, that I could see that applying to many startups and- just trying to get as much customer feedback as possible in those early stages to help you design the product or service that you're going to offer them. Yeah, exactly. And like, you know, we could have, I could have spent all that time going up and down, you know, Sand Hill road and raising a bunch of money and spending all this money on building the technology. But I think the first thing we need to validate, you know, like you said, from Bill Gross's Ted talk is timing, you know, execution in the market. And so if people need this technology, if the timing is, you know, properly attributed to us even building this infrastructure then let's go for it right but we could also have like drones delivering chemicals and taking the 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 pool test kits and flying from house to house right it doesn't need to be a wi-fi enabled robot that sits in your pool and so 
you can see that the problem's there, but being hacky with the actual solution really does drive you to actually what customers want and when they want it. Yeah, that reminds me of one of the interviews I just did with a woman who was on the original team that created the dash button for Amazon, where mm -hmm. you could put it on your washing machine, hit the button and laundry detergent shows up at your door. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And people might not have been ready for that 10 years ago or even a robot in their pool, but now, and then it, I like where you're going with the drones. Maybe that's the future. And thinking about your future, actually, I know one of the things you wanted to get back to was clean water for people, not just pools and hot tubs, but drinking water. And so my girlfriend and I, I, I love going granular with testing things out. Cause I think so many people nowadays are like, Oh, there's a study about it. We must believe it. But how many people actually run experiments on themselves? So one of the things I'm grateful for is my pre-med education, which really instilled this idea of make sure you're taking a scientific approach even on your yourself. So one of the experiments I ran was the pH of, of my urine because I mm. wanted to see how is my body, how alkaline is my body and, and blood and, and the internal environment that I'm living in. So for a little over three weeks, my girlfriend and I, we isolated the variables and we wanted to see how does our energy change, how does food consumption affect it, caffeine, et cetera, et cetera, um, based on the water that we're consuming. And how does that affect the pH levels? So for about three weeks, we did one type of water. And then for three weeks, we did a pH of 10 um, level water. It's, it's actually called 10 water. And, mm. and we wanted to see how it changes our urine pH and energy levels. And every day, three times a day, we would report what, we're, what our pH levels were on our urine and then also how we felt. So I'm curious to hear how you're taking this approach with drinking water and your filtration system. You're obviously, you're an expert when it comes to a water analysis. For me, you know, I'm using this as a proxy to equate from my pH in my urine to what is my internal alkalinity like. And so I'm not sure how much research has been done in this area, but from what we noticed was when drinking the alkaline water, our energy went up, our pH levels in our urine went up to more alkaline, but how does that affect the blood and reducing free radicals, for example? Have you witnessed anything from your experience and your expertise about drinking water and what we could be doing differently? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting question. There's like a ton of studies that are done in that space. Um, and I think the science is still yet to, yet to come out positive or negative either way. Um, where, where, where we kind of sit is more around the loops of water measurement, right? So if you, if you look at, if you zoom up to the 50,000 foot level and you look at where, like what is water, right? And where is, where is water used? Um, primarily it goes to growing our food, right? That's where a lot of the water goes to. Um, the other big portion of it is obviously the drinking water. There's a huge around, you know, mechanical processes in like machinery and things like that to actually run, you know, the stuff that we buy and use every day in terms of wood production, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, where, where, where we kind of sit in this entire realm, um, as I mentioned, right, is that you get your water from a source and you put it into a process, whether that be agriculture, whether that be your swimming pool, whether that be the water that you drink. Um, if you take drinking water as, as, as an example, right, the issue that happened in Flint, Michigan, when they changed their water source and they added in the, the, the chloramines, 
ended up causing lead to leach from the pipes, right? The lead had always been there. They were always in the pipes. It's just changing the water chemistry source and then adding in the chemicals that you were ended up causing more lead to leach than usual. Um, and that lead was obviously deadly and problematic for the citizens of Flint. Um, that's kind of where Sutra wants to sit, right? We want to be the sensor at that point. So we could then build a distributed network to understand, to then warn somebody like a Flint or warn a city to say, hey, looks like your water is not safe that you're feeding to your citizens or on the citizen side, right? Of like, is the water that I'm drinking, is it safe? Um, a good kind so of example that I- Instead of the users having to tell you that from uh, damage that you're doing to their bodies, you're able to find out much sooner. and let Exactly, them... yeah. And that's kind of, you know, back to this proactive versus reactive. That's where we want the sensor to be, especially with something like water. Um, you know, you see this in California all the time. And another quick example with, with agriculture, people will dump fertilizers into water. Um, and a lot of them will actually fertilize through the water. Um, and they do this just on the basis of like, we just want to have crops that are going to grow really well. Um, you can look at the nutrients that are already inside the water. You can then supplement that with the fertilizer to get the exact right mix of fertilizer to water that you need for your plants. That's where Sutra wants to sit, right? We wanna be at that spot that understands how water works, how it moves for the application that you need, whether you're growing grapes or strawberries or lettuce, each needs different nutrient profiles and those nutrients are outputted in terms of chemistry. And we build the chemistry monitor to tell you what you need to do for the food of the world, for the water that we drink, for the processes that we run, for the things that we make. Um, and so that's kind of what advice would you give to someone then if they don't have this in their home or like, for example, I live in a high rise, we have tap water and I know Florida has different levels in chemistry than it's considered hard water, for example, in mm -hmm. Florida, cause there's more minerals. I mean, what would you recommend someone do if they don't have this built into their high rise, for example, or their, their city's water? Yeah, I mean, you can you can go to Amazon and there are EPA um, regulated kits that you can get that have the full slew of, I think, 12 or 17 different tests. Um, and we test our water once a month here in Oakland, um, you, like personally, myself. And then you can alternatively go to the city water district or whatever district, uh, you know, feeds your water. And they usually have public reports um, that actually see what they're testing from the distribution source. And then you can basically back calculate from what's happening at the distribution source to what's happening at your house with this test. Wow. Um, and that should give you a good enough indication. And now do you drink tap water? Is it, is, do you feel safe drinking it in Oakland? We do. Cause uh, actually in San Francisco, we used to get hedge hedgy water, but um, I do feel safe drinking it here. Also our building has um, an ozonator for all of our tap water. And so it's pre-filtered before it actually hits our taps. Nice. That's, uh, that's great. And my buddy who created because water, um, where they, they were the filters, I think for Uber and 3M. And one of the things that they were doing was looking into, he was telling me about looking into the plastic cause we drink this, you know, out of these big gallons now, mm -hmm. P eight, this pH 10 water. And he's saying I should be concerned about the plastic that they use. So have you, is there anything we should know about the plastics that the water is contained in before we consume it? Yeah, I know that there's different regulations with um, the tap water that we're drinking from the city versus, you know, bottled water that we get inside of these plastic bottles. Um, 
the plastic, as far as I know from the bottle companies, is that they are maintained such that they don't leach. But um, it's always, you know, point of to contention, and I think testing it would be would be great to figure out what's actually happening there, because um, right. different plastics do respond differently also to different type of pH waters, right? So you may or may not be getting leaching from the from the actual plastic. That's good to know. I, I I'm reading more and more about bio persistence. I was watching this documentary called The Devil We Know, which is about the whole 3M debacle and. Um, I forget the, the other company that ended up buying, buying this product, but a chemist created a biopersistent molecule that's used to create Teflon. Teflon is the, is the uh, layman's terms for it. And that, that has been used in our pans to create non-stick pans, our windshield wipers. That's why they're able to work so well. And it's, it's everywhere. And, but because it's biopersistent, which means for those listening that don't know it it's basically it exists in the human body pretty much for the rest of your life depending on how biopersistent it is regardless of what you do and so a lot of these people apparently at the factories of 3m and and those that also created teflon ended up having you know toxic effects and uh, deformities in their their children um, and the farther removed you are from it the better but it's interesting to find out we're now realizing that there's a lot of chemicals that were synthetically created that are biopersistent enough, which changes the biochemistry of the human body, ultimately resulting in potential deformities or uh, cancers, et cetera. Is there any thoughts you have about that? Yeah, those things are, are really hard to test for actually, which is, which is, I think an entire podcast in it's in itself, right? There's, um, there's a beautiful documentary called, I think, Dark Dark Waters or Black Waters, which was a, a very similar. It, it was the story of of Teflon in the in the Midwest, I think, um, and of like a farmer that had gotten, you know, his cattle were getting affected by the by the Teflon runoff that was in the water. Um, the interesting thing is, you know, when these chemicals are made, we just we don't really have the data on how they affect negatively or positively the human body. Um, and so they're really hard to regulate when you kind of first are coming out of the door with these new chemicals. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a really tough thing because they're like, I wish I could tell you to go buy a test kit, but we don't know what the chemicals are yet to then build that test kit. And yeah, so, I mean, Ravi, that's so frustrating though. It's, it's like, how do we do a better job of, I think we need to do a better job two, twofold. One, rewarding these companies for identifying it instead of punishing them and making them feel like, oh, we need to boycott their products because then they're going to be fearful of letting the information out. And then they result in these settlements, these lawsuits from these people that are directly affected, like the, the women that had the deformities for their child and whatnot. They, they just give them some money on the side to keep it hush hush. And that person's obviously willing to take the money, you know? So how do we do a better job of allowing these companies to feel comfortable sharing this information so they can be better and we don't penalize them too much where they're and even the employees within the company that know this information and are keeping it hush hush because well teflon's now produced billions of dollars for different companies and, and people so i think that's one aspect is the company and then also the employee. And then three, I guess, would be 
how do we ensure that we're checking these things? Because Elon Musk was just sharing this on Joe Rogan's podcast, how it took the car industry 20 years to install seatbelts as a mandatory item in a car, even yeah. after 20 years after we had already known the data was there that it saves lives. And same way you could do this with the tobacco industry, and I'm sure there's many others, but it seems like we're, we almost have this archaic, uh, middle ages, savage, barbaric uh, attitude of, you know, publicly hang them if they do something wrong, rather than a forg forgiveness, empathetic mentality of, if we keep hanging them publicly, they're never going to reveal the things that they do wrong, the mistakes they made. And even now we could, we could even extrapolate that further with some of the, the crises that are going on in, in current times. If we keep you know, castrating people like they did in the olden days and for, for a figurative speech and, and publicly hanging them. How are we going to allow people to be better and do better? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think the thing that comes to mind is the, is the media, right? I think we run on these really, really quick media cycles and that's changed even for the worse with, you know, Facebook and Twitter and like the fact that we can sit in our own little bubbles and alternatively have realities that are separate than anything else. Right. So like today, if you had the Teflon issue, you would, you would have Teflon probably, you know, paying off both sides of, of the sphere and, and I don't want to call it misinformation, but like you could skew the narrative for whoever you want to given the media outlet that they follow. Right. So this isn't, Peter Jennings on ABC seven news coming on in 1990s and everybody came on between seven and eight. And whether that guy told you the right thing or the wrong thing, you had one person to listen to. Right. And so I think the, our, our ability to digest information and like see all of this stuff allows us in these really, really quick cycles of, of, of the media to then, you know, publicly hang these people because we were making decisions off of really, really quick pieces of data that the media is feeding us. Um, and so I wonder, like, how do you how do you change the media, right? Like, I think that's that's where this thing all comes down to is the transfer of information from 3M or Teflon or Company X doing Y that is problematic. How do they get the information over to us in a in a reliable way such that we don't hang them, right? First of all, but secondly, we all do have full and true information. Um, and so I think that's where it comes down to. Yeah, that's a good point. We have multiple sources that the information is filtered through. And if you're not listening to the media, you're uninformed. And if you are listening to the media, you're misinformed and yeah. in, in some cases. And so you don't know who to believe anymore. And it becomes this challenge of it's already a full time job to digest the information in the first place. And now I have to decide which of it I'm going to believe or spend time and energy and stress on and which I'm just going to disregard or ignore and just hope for the best. And, and, and you even have going to your point about paying them off. I mean, the tobacco industry was found paying doctors, medical doctors to produce research and data that was manipulated in their favor. Yeah. And so it's even medical doctors anymore or the Peter Jennings of the world. We, we have to take, all of these pieces of information with a grain of salt and then have to do our own due diligence to decide what's truthful and what's not. And it, it's even harder to do that. Like you said, because there's so many sources that the information is now coming through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, um, Yuval Noah Harari, um, says this really, really well in Sapiens, Sapiens. 21 lessons. 
um, those two books, like in 21 Lessons, he, he just to the T explains this like media problem, right? Of like how you have the levers of psychologically affecting anybody to do a thing through Facebook ads or through Google ads, you know, whatever that might be, you, you can, you can micro target people with the message that they feel like hearing. Um, and for the media that at times is scary, right? Buying a product. I love it. Right. Cause we use Facebook ads all day long, but, um, when I can craft a story and a narrative to get somebody to like believe a particular thing, that's where it gets scary. Yeah. The persuasive techniques. And if you've ever watched a documentary century of self, I think Simon Sinek said it was the most important documentary humans should watch before they die. And it was all about Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays. He's the founder of public relations, the idea, the concept. And the original idea was used for politicians and corporations to manipulate the masses. So like the divide and conquer strategy was used in, in public relations. I mean, he goes through and verbatim, like how it, it's like a, four to six hour documentary uh, in different parts. But it's amazing to see how he broke down the psychology of what he did in order to help these corporations get you to believe something. And also how politicians would, would persuade you to do something. And, you know, it's not all the media's fault because the media is incentivized to get as many views as possible because the more views, the more ad dollars and sponsor dollars they get. And so they have a job of trying to get you to click or to watch or to read this headline as fast as possible mm -hmm. and to, to spend as much time on their page or on their channel as possible. And they're directly incentivized monetarily to do that. And yeah. so it's not an individual's fault. It's just a systemic problem because the system is incentivized. It's already flawed inherently. No matter who you put in the seat, whether it's Peter Jennings or Barbara Walters, it's inherently flawed already. It exactly. doesn't matter who, who the figurehead is or the spokesperson because they're now incentivized to get you to click faster, watch longer, enjoy it more, and sensationalizing it helps do that. The clickbait helps do that. Mm -hmm. So how do we change that system, Robbie? Yeah, that's, that's the question I don't have an answer for yet, but you know, that's, that's like, when you say this issue with 3M and Teflon, I, I, I think, I think it comes down to the media, right? How do you, how do you reinvent the media? How do you change that infrastructure? How do we put the incentives? This is why I love behavioral economics. This was my main subject of study in, in the MBA program, but making sure that choice architecture is designed in a way that's conducive for ethical, moral behavior and, and benefits the, the most amount of people in the best possible way. And so we need to restructure and realign the incentives and the punishments. Going back to operant conditioning, I think people think we're much smarter than we really are. It's, we're, we're really just smart animals that, that are rewarded or punished based on the things that we do. And, and so we need to think of a system that can reward us in the right way. And if, but the, the problem is the people that would have to change that system are the same people that benefit from not changing that system. Exactly. The, the incumbency. <laughs> <laughs> so you end up in a viral loop that incentivizes the people that could change the system to not change it. Whereas everybody else needs a change to the system to be, to be better. Right. And so 
it's this it's this dichotomy. We're kind of at a rock and a hard place. And so I think the forcing function has to come from somewhere outside, um, you know, an environmental effect or whatever it might be. But something has to happen from the outside to kind of change this incumbent system and bring in a new bring in a new candidate, right? Bring in a new media, bring in a new Peter Jennings for a different infrastructure. Disruption. Yeah. You're right. Disruption would really, I mean, you're seeing it now. It's forcing people to change things. They're saying if, if there's enough disruption, it forces people to rethink, pause, reflect and say, okay, maybe this isn't working and we need to restructure everything. And sometimes we need to move backwards in order to move forwards. Definitely. 100%. So we need to put the incentives in it. You're right. We need to this could be its own podcast in and of itself, just us <laughs> deciding how we're going to, we might even chalk up adults as, you know what, this generation, let's just chalk it up as a loss. But if we're thinking about the humanity for the future, mm. it all comes down to early childhood education and parenting. And I'm biased because my ed tech was, is about uh, early childhood education. And um, if we think about, we have to build in empathy and social emotional intelligence to these children at such an early age. So by the time they are running a 3M company, for example, they're already more well equipped to ensure the, the safety and propagation of humanity in a positive way. Definitely. Yeah. The question is, how do you do that now? That will be our next visit <laughs> when we, we meet for our podcast the second time. Uh, yeah. We'll do an update. We'll say, all right, Ravi, we're coming together and we're going to brainstorm. And we'll, I mean, just like we do in entrepreneurship, right? This is why I love entrepreneurship. It's really just problem solving. You identify a problem and you work on solving it through brainstorming, through iterations, through design thinking approaches, and you come up with a solution and you test it out, make V2, V3, et cetera, et cetera, and just improve upon it. But if we don't have that approach from the get-go, we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Yeah, definitely. So, Robbie, to, to finish up here, we're going to switch gears into, because we could talk about this for hours, and I, I would love doing that with you, um, the under 30 seconds round. Where I'm going to fire off some questions, answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Sure. Okay. What's the book you've gifted more often than any other book and why? Sapiens. Um, and I do that because when I read it, it gave me the overview effect almost like astronauts get. And so I feel like it really told me why we are where, why we are where we're at right now. Changes your worldview. It's one yeah. of those books. Read it. If you haven't already read it, it's a great one. What's one of the best investments and one of the worst investments you've ever made and why? One of the best investments I've made was in a Breville coffee maker. Um, especially during this quarantine period, you know, making my own cappuccinos has been amazing. Um, the worst investment was this stupid ad that I got shown on Facebook for a blanket that could basically have sand go through it. And it was like the worst thing ever. It trapped so much sand. It was like the worst purchase. I ever saw made. that ad, I think. And I was like, that's a genius idea. I'm glad I heard it from you first before I yeah. bought it though. So it doesn't actually work. All right. No, you heard no, it fine. first. Ladies and gentlemen, do not buy that blanket. <laughs> Number three, what's the most impactful thing you do in your morning routine and the most impactful thing you do in your evening routine? Uh, most impactful thing I do in my morning routine is not have a cell phone. Make sure I charge that in the night before. Um, and in the evening, I try to get into meditation. Well, or pretend you won the Peter Thiel Fellowship and you were going to get money to start a business instead of go to college. 
What's the very first thing you do to start a new business? Disrupt media. Whatever, you know, given this conversation we had today. Good figure, answer. Figure out how to break that. It, it's an industry ready for disruption. It's, it's ripe for it. Education and, and healthcare as well. And government. <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot we could work on, Robbie. Last <laughs> one. What's something you never knew you needed? I'm going to say the Breville coffee maker. I didn't think I ever needed that, but it's been, it's been amazing. You're really so promoting great. this one. What's, what's so great about it? What's the difference between that and a regular coffee maker? Oh my gosh. When you, when you pull those espresso shots and you like have a, have like a milk foamer on the side and you can like actively make a real cappuccino like you'd get from a Starbucks or a Pete's um, by, by no way am I like a blue bottle barista or anything. I'm not even saying I, <laughs> I like this coffee maker will make you be one, but it gets you like 60% of the way there. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Ravi, thank you so much for being here today. Before you go, what's next for you? What's the next big goal, milestone, or bucket list item you're going to achieve? Yeah, we need to um, ship units this summer. So we have them coming across the Pacific right now. That's a, that's a big kind of objective of mine. Um, and then the kind of looking forward is to figure out how to move Sutro past the pool and spa industry into, into water, right? I want to I start really impacting the way that humanity looks at water and the way that we push water towards agriculture processes, you know, everything in the above that water does touch. And that's what I love I, it. what's next. Ravi, where do listeners go to connect with you directly? Uh, you can go to mysutro.com. My, my email address is on there if you want to email me. Um, if not, you can look, look me up on Instagram at, at Ravi H. Karani. Um, those are the two places you can find me. Please go connect with Ravi. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for being here today. This is Ravi Kurani with Sutro, who created a robot to automatically test your pool water, hot tub water. We learned so much today. We learned how we are going to disrupt the media, change the world together. We learned how to hustle, especially if you're starting your own business. Such a great episode. Um, Ravi, thank you so much for being here today. It was such a pleasure. Thank you, Phil. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Have an amazing day. Thanks for joining us today. I hope this episode helped you as much as it helped me. Who do you think would benefit from hearing it? You can make an impact on their life by sharing it now. Before you go, I encourage you to tell us your favorite part of the episode in the review section. Now it's time to level up. Level up. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.